couple of years, their ministries have taken a turn for the worst. Bell was exposed as a heretic, a universalist, one who denies hell. And it came to be known that Driscoll was an angry man, abusive, with a track record of hurting his staff. Both have left their pulpits. Joanna Matthew commented to me just a couple weeks ago that Driscoll did not watch his life and Bell did not watch his doctrine. She's quoting from Paul, of course, who said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life and your teaching or your doctrine. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. More recently, more personally for me, imagine my pain when I read this newspaper article published just a couple weeks ago in a Lexington newspaper at a church that I helped found in 1997. Quote, The public ministry of the lead pastor of a prominent Lexington church has been discontinued after the confession of a unhealthy emotional attachment with a female pastor on staff. Pastor Pete Heiss and Pastor Sharon Clements of Quest Community Church told the church's leadership teams that their relationship led to the crossing of physical boundaries. Both are married. Their public ministry has been discontinued and responsibilities for leading and teaching has been assigned to current staff. Quest, started by Heiss in 1997, hosts the annual Questapalooza Music Festival featuring Christian recording artists. Quest has 5,000 members. End quote. What do we do when our leaders fall? What do we think when our heroes have great failures? How should it affect our lives? The passage today has much to say about heroes, husbands, and the plan of God. That's our outline for the sermon today. Heroes, husbands, and the plan of God. First, let's talk about heroes. If ever there was a hero of the faith, it's Father Abraham. He's revered in three major religions, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions. The Bible, in the passage we read just this morning in Romans 4 and in Hebrews 11, holds him out as a hero of the faith. Last week, here at Redeemer, we saw in the first half of Genesis 12 that he was the man who had a radical faith and received a radical call. But if last week was about a radical call, this week, the second half of Genesis 12, is about a radical fall. Let's face it. Abraham forces his wife into a harem that puts her on track to adultery for his gain. Now, when Dave gave me this passage, he assigned this passage to me a couple weeks ago. I sort of wondered what to do with it. What do you do with it? We, we don't want verses 12 to, from verses 10 to 20 to be here. 
We don't, we don't want Abraham to be a guy who sells out his wife to save his own skin. Our, our temptation is to skip over this story altogether. There's just one problem with that. If you skip over passages like this in the Bible, we would have a hard time reading the Bible. This story is repeated time and again in the Bible about patriarchs who fall into error and sin. The Bible gives unblushing accounts of the sins of the heroes of the faith. Adam rejects God. Noah's drunkenness. Isaac commits the same sin as his father Abraham. Jacob cheats. His sons sell their brother into slavery. Moses is harsh and angry and disobedient. David commits adultery and murder. Peter denied Christ. Paul was a terrorist. Why? Why does the Bible paint these kind of pictures about heroes? Well, the Bible wants to make sure that we understand that all people, even heroes, need rescue. My, my personal discomfort with this passage exposes a desire in my heart for Abraham to be a perfect hero. I want heroes to earn their hero status. And when a hero doesn't meet my expectations, I want to dismiss them as a hero. The world, of course, loves to crucify a hero that doesn't meet their expectations. But this story is here precisely so that we understand what makes a hero of the faith. And it's clear from this story, it's not because he was perfect. What's important about Abraham was that he believed God. In just a few chapters from this text, in Genesis chapter 15, and then quoted in Romans chapter 4, the scriptures say that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. The same is true for us. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, You have been saved by grace alone through faith, not by works. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Now, if we understand that, it helps us respond to the failure of religious heroes. First of all, with grace. We respond to the failures of those who are religious heroes of the faith with grace. We don't excuse sin. But the Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 14, that God remembers our frailty, so we should do the same for others. Abraham was, the, was new in his role as the father to the nations. We, we remember that Abraham's only background was pagan, as Dave told us last week. It would be 400 years in the future when Moses gave the law. No church, no scriptures, no fellowship, not any other believer. He was completely alone. In the same way, we give grace to the Abraham of yesteryear. We do the same for the Driscolls or the Bells or the Pastor Pete's of today. Not because we sweep sin under the rug, not at all. We understand huge consequences in the life for their sin, but we're patient. And we remember that if people of faith persevere through failure, they grow. In fact, in Romans 4, Paul talks about Abraham and his growth of faith. Faith 
grows through our repentance. Not only do we extend grace, we respond with humility. We are not above the sins of our fathers. We, re- we recognize them in us. One of the most important things to God is not to act good enough, but to be humble. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. The greatest demonstration of humility is that you acknowledge yourself a sinner. Not someone who's above Abraham. Not someone who would do better in his shoes. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. And I don't mean acknowledge a sinner. You're a sinner like, yeah, we all make mistakes kind of way. Oh, we're all human, that sort of thing. No, not at all. I mean that we acknowledge that we are sinners who have offended a holy, righteous God and that we're worthy of His wrath. For many of us, especially those of us from Christian backgrounds, the most important question about true faith is not, when did you become a Christian? As important as that question may be. The most important question is, when did you deal with your sin humbly before God? When did you come to understand that you are a sinner before a holy God who requires righteousness? If you were huffy about the sin of Abraham or Driscoll or Bell or Pastor Pete, then you might be in danger of not seeing yourself as a sinner. An important response to fallen heroes is to take heed ourselves. In humility, we watch ourselves. So we extend grace, we respond humbly, and we apply Matthew 7, verse 1, correctly. Matthew 7, verse 1, you know that scripture, the most misquoted and out-of-context Bible verse in the world. Even non-Christians know this verse. Judge not, lest ye be judged. This is a verse most associated with the supporters of fallen pastors. I've seen it on blogs, Facebook posts, numerous correspondence. It's a verse used to shut down conversation the world around. Out of context. But it's an important verse. And when Jesus said it, he was instructing his disciples on how to help someone snared by sin. The reason I think so many get this verse wrong is a problem of English. The word judge can mean many things. So you can be a judge, you can be judgmental, you can judge wisely. All have different meanings. A judge is a person who sits behind a bench and renders legal verdict. Being judgmental is being self-righteous, having a self-righteous attitude. Judging wisely is about discernment. What Jesus commands in Matthew 7, verse 1, is to stop a judgmental attitude. A judgmental attitude which prevents you from seeing your own sin. Stop assigning other people to hell, for instance. That's judgmental. First, Jesus says, remove the log from your own eye so that you can help your brother. Remove the speck from his. What he does not mean 
What he does not mean is in discernment. Jesus does not call us to stop being wise, to stop having wise judgment. He does not mean kiss your brains goodbye. The Bible clearly calls us to biblical evaluation. Bottom line, we should use this verse, Matthew 7, verse 1. But be very careful when you do. Because to say, just to say, stop being judgmental, is on the verge of being judgmental. Be careful. When I received word about the fall of my friend, Pastor Pete, I wrote him a letter. And I confessed to him that I was sorry that I had not approached him about the discomfort I felt in his relationship with Sharon, two people I know and love. I wish I had. Grace, humility, non-judgmental attitude, prayer for the leaders of the church is fourth. Pray for the leaders of the church. Listen, I um, had the joy and privilege of spending Tuesday with Dave. We prayed together. We looked at Scripture together. We talked about what great things God had done here at Redeemer over the years, about our partnership and where God might take us. And I can't commend a pastor like Dave any higher than I can to you right now. He is God's man for this church. And yet he is a man. He needs to be encouraged. He needs to be loved. And he needs to be prayed for. Pray for Dave. Pray for his family. Pray that God would watch over his leadership. Who would Satan rather take out in this church than this man? And by God's grace, he's been protected. And yet, he's on the point. Remember that as you pray, as you encourage. Finally, most importantly, grace, humility, non-judgmental attitude, pray for the leaders of the church. Finally, remember who we follow. We follow Jesus. I received a letter from a friend back at Quest Community Church, and she commented that the church was surviving, thriving even. There's been great pain, she said. But we follow Jesus the Lord, not men of the earth. And to that I say amen. Now listen, we can't look at this passage without talking about husbands, point two. Uh, So husbands, I'd I'd like to talk to you and anyone who wants to be a husband. So women, you can do something else for a moment. I'll get back to you in a second. (laughs) Abraham went to Egypt to protect his family so they wouldn't starve. It's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But somehow on the road to Egypt, fears begin to gnaw at him. He's getting ready to be Pat in a foreign land. He fears the locals. Now that's ironic, as the only person of integrity in the story is Pharaoh. <laughs> but notice that Abraham's fears lead him to a plan to treat his wife as a commodity in a desire that things will go well for him. We don't really understand the practices of marriage, the views of women in the day. Certainly Abraham didn't know Ephesians chapter 5, the full plan of God for marriage. He didn't have that text, but we do. 
Listen to the verse in Ephesians 5 about a good marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Jesus was crucified for the church. And we're to model our marriages after that pattern. Later, Paul says in Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery. But that marriage looks like Christ and the church, that union. So Jesus is the husband of the church. And a good marriage looks like Jesus and the church, that relationship. Husbands, you're called to serve your wife in Ephesians 5 sort of way. Sacrificial, cross-centered love. Now, of course, the truth is, and guys, I hate to give our secrets away here, but the truth is, we know that our wives outserve us, right? We, we all know that's true. That's their right. They can do that. They're welcome to do that, right? No problem with that. They're good at it. Us guys? Not, not much. But that's what we mean when we say we're leading well. We serve our lives sacrificially. And if you're not good at it, well, tough. Work on it. Work on it. Aim to be the kind of husband who serves your wife well with such love that it makes it easy for wives to submit and respect you, which is their role in Ephesians 5. And I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean just providing for. I meet a lot of husbands who say, well, I, I provide for the home, and, and they are, and of course that's good. But face it, you would probably do that even if you weren't married anyway. How do we do it really? Seven, real quick, diagnostic questions. One, few here would enroll their wife in a harem. But do you make your wife work in a job that beats her down? Maybe you should think about changing your lifestyle so she doesn't have to do that. I understand some people need to work. Some women need to work. I understand that. But maybe she should look for a work that doesn't beat her down, and you can help her in that. Two, is the home a safe place, or is it a place of arguments and fights? Three, how's time with the children going? Hey, just, just one little asterisk. I think I've said this before. Studies show, admittedly secular studies, secular studies show that if you love your wife, you can almost ignore the children and they will turn out fine. So, secular study. And that's because the greatest gift that you give your children more than money from your job or education in their schools is love in the home. The best gift for children is a warm and loving home. Four, are you there for her emotionally or have you checked out? Or worse, are you constantly put out? Five, do you help your wife do things that burden her? Are you thinking about ways that you can serve her in a way that lifts a burden? Leanna's 
for years when we were first married, did all the finances in our home. She was much better at it than me, but I noticed it stressed her out. And so finally I said, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll take over the finances. And she knew it was a bad idea, and I did bounce a lot of checks. <laughs> but I didn't tell her about it because <laughs> I was in charge of the finances. And she was relieved. Six, do you have eyes only for her? Or do your eyes rove to others? Being faithful to your wife means being faithful in your mind. The fight, the fight for sexual purity is a fight that happens between the temples. Adultery starts with a dissatisfied heart. Don't give dissatisfaction a foothold. The Bible says, be satisfied with the wife of your youth. And besides, it's, it's, more than, it's more than just a relationship between a husband and wife. The reason, the reason we don't turn, the reason we don't look there, the reason we don't look there, the reason we don't punch that button on the computer is not just to protect the marriage. It's also because you want to see God. Right? The pure in heart, what? See God. And when we are not pursuing purity, we don't see God. So we don't look, we don't turn. We don't look, we don't turn because we want to see God. I'm going to keep repeating every time the mic checks out until we figure out what's wrong. So just, I'm not, I'm not a broken record. I'm just, I'm just repeating to make sure everyone hears. Finally, most importantly, do you care for the growth and, and, and support spiritually of your wife? The big concern to God is that we're leading well spiritually. I was talking to Karen Williams, soon to be Karen Purdy, a couple months ago about what she wanted in a husband more than anything. This was before she was even uh, sure about um, becoming Mrs. Purdy. She told me it wasn't wealth. She said it's not handsome, though she did allow that that didn't hurt. She said she wanted a husband that would lead her well spiritually. That she wouldn't be the one who had to drag him to church, force him to pray, to be the one to open the Bible. That he would be the one to take the lead to do that with her and, if God is gracious, with their children. I think that's what most godly-minded women want, to be led well spiritually. Okay, women, you can come back. I'm going to talk about the big picture plan of God. Thanks for letting me talk to the men. Now, I'm not sure what was going on in Abraham's mind about this little deception with Pharaoh. Maybe he thought it was just between him and Sarah. Maybe he thought no one would ever find out. I'm not sure how he thought he was going to get Sarah out of the harem. How did he he think about that? You know, I'm going to give her to the harem, then one day I'll go get her? I mean, he was going to kidnap her? I mean, she's married to Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. But no no matter what was going on in Abraham's mind, his sin is not little. It affects everyone. It's not just against his wife. It's not just against the Lord. It's a sin that would cause Pharaoh to commit adultery unknowingly. It's a sin that was actually passed on to his children. There, there are actually three husband-wife-sister stories 
in the Old Testament. It's why, it's why we've studied more than just one text. There's one here in Genesis 12, and then much, much later with Abimelech in chapter 20, who is the Gentile Philistine leader. It's a different story at a different time, and just a year before Isaac was born. And then when Isaac is born and grown and marries, he does the same thing with maybe the same Abimelech. It may even be a different Abimelech. So there's, there's this sin that's being continued on. All, all from this one little fearful trip down to Egypt. Well, here in chapter 12, as you would expect, Abraham's small sins create a big mess. There are no private sins. I mean, good grief. Think about it. Here it's 5,000 years later and we're still talking about it. This is no private little sin. This is no, hey baby, this is just between you and me. No one will ever know. None of that. The Bible says actually one day everything will be known about our lives too. Our lives will be shouted from the rooftops before God. It will make the internet look like a tin can tied to a string. What seemed like a small sin, what seemed like a private sin becomes really big. The only way out of the mess that Abraham made was for God to step in and rescue Abraham. He sends plagues on Pharaoh. And somehow this causes Pharaoh to realize the truth of the situation. We're not, we're not told how he figures that out. Maybe, maybe Sarah told him in the harem. Regardless, Pharaoh confronts Abraham. It must have been a little awkward. Oh, I understand this is your wife. Take her. Go. And Abraham leaves with some plunder, donkeys and servants and such. I suspect that I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking, why did God send a plague on Pharaoh? Why didn't God send a plague on Abraham? It's an odd thing, right? Pharaoh, he's the guy that didn't do anything wrong. He's just there. He gets the plague when Abraham sinned. Well, there's a number of reasons for that. And they're very important to the story, this particular story. For starters, Pharaoh comes to see that it's not Abraham that he's up against, but God Almighty. He might have actually killed Abraham when he discovered this. But he realizes he's up against God. And there's more. Even though God cares about the details of Abraham's life, God is also unfolding a bigger plan. The story is bigger at, than it is when, at just first reading. It hints of the future in two ways. One will happen 400 years later when the descendants of Abraham are locked in slavery in Egypt. 400 years later, the promises of God to Abraham have come true. He is the father of hundreds of thousands, just as he promised. But the people of Israel groan under cruel bondage and slavery. You know the story. The Hebrew people are in a situation they can't get out of on their own. And God rescues them. 
God delivers them by sending what? A plague to Pharaoh, just as he did in Abraham's day. They're released, and they leave with plunder. This small story of Abraham is a small marker of what God will do in the future in Egypt on a bigger scale. The Bible does that, you know. It's always pointing to something bigger. One of the most important things to understand about the Bible is that all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Christ. So when in Luke 24, Jesus says, all of Scripture points to me, he means all of it. And it's true here. Because there's even a bigger story than just the Exodus. Do you see it? Do you see this bigger story? Now, while it's true that this story is about a smaller picture of Abraham and Sarah and their marriage and God's concern for the details of their life, while it's true that the story is about the radical faith of Abraham and what a hero he is and his radical call, all that is true. And while it's true that this story points to an even bigger day of deliverance uh, when, when God pulls out his people from Egypt in the Exodus, the biggest picture is that this story is about the plan of God for the entire world. You see, the reason God rescues Sarah and Abraham from the mess they've made is not only God is concerned about them as people, as individuals, He, God, is protecting His rescue plan for the world through the line of Abraham. Our salvation, yours and mine, hinges on the protection of a single thread of descendants who stretch from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to King David to a little baby born in a manger. It's that line. And God knows it. He has a plan. That baby in the manger, King Jesus, came to rescue us from the mess we're in. Much like Abraham, we're in a situation we can't get out of ourselves. We're chained to sin. Much like Abraham, there's a powerful king who owns us. Our only hope is that God would choose to break the bonds of sin for us on our behalf. Just as Abraham's sin was borne by an innocent Pharaoh king, so the plague of sin would be borne by the innocent King Jesus. Do you see that? The Bible says that even while we were sinners, Christ bore our sin. And just as Abraham departed with plunder he did not earn, so we are set free with the treasures of God, our salvation and eternal destiny. God fulfilled the rescue plan for the world through the seed of Abraham down the millenniums until one day on the cross of Calvary, it was finished. That's what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. And so, Christian, you and I have come to inherit the promise of the blessing of Abraham through Christ. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. And neither do we. We simply believe. That's all God asks of us. To return from rebellious disbelief and believe in Jesus. So when God promised Abraham that he will bless all nations through him, God is speaking of Jesus. That's the blessing. All nations. 
And as a result of Jesus taking sin on the cross for us, he earned the right to offer forgiveness for all who would simply believe. That's why Jesus is our hero. He was the only perfect hero. He lived a perfect life to die a perfect death in payment for our sin. That's why Jesus is the protector, the husband of the church in Ephesians 5. That's why we take the plan of God seriously. So understand the plan. Just in summary, understand the plan. Understand that God cares about the details of your life. One of the details of your life might be that you're in this room right now in this service. Just like Abraham who thought it was famine who took him to Egypt, you might be here by the hand of God. Understand that God knows that without Christ you're in a mess. Abraham was a sinner, so are we, and we can't get out ourselves. We need a hero savior. Understand that when Christ went to the cross, he did he did that to ransom you from bondage. And understand the response that just like Abraham, so many ages ago, we turn, we repent from rebellious unbelief and simply put our faith and trust in Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing of God. In some ways, you see, God calls all of us to be fallen heroes. All of us. Because we get to continue on in passing on the blessing of God to others who need this great rescue. So if you are found in Christ, if you know Him, we call you to take part in this plan. So remember, heroes, husbands, and the plan of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you um, are the perfect hero. That we do not look to men. We do not need to look to any one person to be our hero except for you. You are the one. We would pray, Lord God, that, that this great plan that has been passed to us from Abraham, this plan that it is merely belief that allows us access to the living God, to be forgiven of our sin by the living God, would be taken hold of by many here in this room, in this city, in this nation. We pray for more blessing that comes from the promise to Abraham. In Jesus' name.